Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. Good evening. My name is Kevin Reynolds and I'm a producer here with Drama on One. Tonight on Drama on One, we celebrate our colleague, the poet, the playwright, essayist, editor and producer, Aidan Matthews, who after 37 years of service retired from RTE yesterday. Aidan began working here in the Radio Centre in 1984, writing and producing drama and religious programmes. Now in normal circumstances, like other good folk retiring from whatever occupation, we would raise a glass and perhaps enjoy a slice of cake with our friend. In these times, however, that won't be happening. So perhaps it's more fitting that we share with you this celebration and broadcast four pieces that mark Aidan's breath as a playwright, a poet, an editor and a broadcaster. While at Stanford University in California, Aidan studied under the literary theorist and anthropologist René Girard. Girard's thoughts and writings on mimetic crisis are resolved by the selection of a scapegoat who is ostracised, vilified and subsequently deified. I mention this in passing because this thinking informs a body of Aidan's work which explores the dialectic of desire and resentment as the key to human deadlock. Aidan's writing examines the scapegoat in states of both victimage and victimhood as the black sheep becomes the Lamb of God. Now later on you'll hear Aidan's poem Sound Effects in a Studio, a work which fuses his parallel careers as a poet and a drama producer. And this is followed by his skilful abridgment of John Borman's Nature Diary, which we broadcast tonight on the eve of John Borman's 88th birthday. Finally then you'll hear Kadish for Cohen, a reflection from November 2016 broadcast on the occasion of Leonard Cohen's death and one of many such popular broadcasts that Aidan gave on Liveline. But first, A Pathetic Fallacy by Aidan Matthews. A woman of a certain age and of a most uncertain spirit frets in bittersweet freefall over her two adult children as their mishaps mount. Karen Ardiff shows that there is no statute of limitations on a parent's licence to pine. This is A Pathetic Fallacy by Aidan Matthews. What it's called is the pathetic fallacy. I looked it up on Wikipedia and there it was. Eureka, I said it to Shelley, but she's past laughing. That's why the wards up above, closed, open, whatever, are empty in the winter, I said. Not a soul, not a sedative. The bipolars, the headbangers, they blend in beautifully. They pass for the rest of us. Shitty outside, shitty inside, all well with the world. But when the procession starts, snowdrops, crocus, daffodils, bluebells, the good news, the groundswell, they panic. It's sunny, it's spring, the fatties are jogging, the leaving cert grinds are flirting in the gelateria and the sick go apeshit. Jesus, Mary and John of God, it's back to business, the self-harming starts, they're all Padre Pios again. And you can't say, listen love, the nails went in the wrists, not in the palms. But Shelley said, what about the girl on YouTube who lifted the double-decker bus off her baby? Anything can happen because everything has, but the bipolars know they know myself is not myself, we do not coincide, I am who amn't. 
So my Basil walks down the middle of the road or he lies there on the tarmac like a crucifix since there's no traffic now, no rat run, no shattered side view mirrors anymore. Only middle-aged dads with man buns and IVF twins on bikes, no trikes, no stabilisers going around and the children looking back frowning under their helmets. Or the woman from sheltered housing who carries a cane for the blind and swings it round like a fishing rod to avoid infection. Though she was the one who complained on the neighbourhood app, re the strange sallow-looking man at the Lewis, and he turned out to be a consultant urologist from the matter. Then she got a tart little text from the gay guy in the house he extended to the back wall, litigation ongoing, all about leaping to this and leaping to that. But he made his money as an ophthalmologist in Singapore, was it, or in Hong Kong, God help us, by snipping the transverse pleat on his patient's eyelids so they'd look less slitty and oriental. Kettle-calling pot. It's no, Basil's right. Everyone's jittery. Everyone's imitating themselves like the doctor said. If you can imitate normality, you're normal enough. You can tell from the jollity, the up one octave voice, the panto wave from the garden gate, the panto wave ditto from the front porch. Even the birds are zigzagging their way to the feeder. Look left. Look right, beware, be watchful, wait. Crisis before me, crisis behind me, crisis above me, crisis below me. Shelley was being spiteful. She knows I love that hymn. But they are spooked, the finches' little hearts hammering like the fetal beat on a scan. The same for all of us, a billion heartbeats, mammals anyway. The rhino, the otter, the port boys, the bonobo monkeys that keep having sex because of anxiety. That's how I knew when Basil was at it back in the day when he hung the miraculous medal on the light switch and forgot to put it on in the morning. And I thought he's a man. He's short, he hasn't had his growth spurt, but he's a man. Now he'll bring home some Mount Anvil brat and they'll canoodle through their train tracks. At least in my time you could take them out before you put your tongue in. Then you see how people with problems cope, real people with real problems, real time, real world. Shelley, stuck in the wrong end of Seamus Heaney Heights with a backyard that she calls a garden facing north. Not that she cares when the second egg won't take and it's here we go again, snap of the rubber gloves. Sign here, sweetheart, but we won't choose the ones you harvested in Birmingham. We'll try the Belfast cash. And they'll be six years old when they squeeze their way into the world. But at least their grannies will get to see them, to smell them, the nape of the neck. This will be over then. All of this will be over, please God, or inshallah, as Basil says. Inshallah, shall I, is his new mantra, because half the nurses in the closed ward are Iraqi. Admittedly, two of them come from Limerick, but the others will tell you what they've seen, the flies over the dumper truck. And it's enough to make you mad. But they're the ones with the medicine trolley. They're the ones saying, Basil, you have to wash, because he stinks like a fridge in a power cut. I was so tired of zigzagging that I went for a walk in the school grounds. The main gate's locked because of the condom they found at the Statue of Mary, but the wooden side one still opens if you push it to the left and then up at the same time there's a knack to it. They have the pond covered like a swimming pool because of the crash in the porter cabin and the sunken garden behind the astroturf is now dedicated to nature, so it's full of dandelions and weeds. I was just sitting there on the old tram stones in the oval watching a baby squirrel play statues and then scamper, stop, play statues, scamper again. Then this huge bird, a rook, a raven bigger than a crow, jaws like a secateur's goose steps over to the squirrel and skewers him straight in the chest. The squirrel bats back but his paws are shorter than the beak so he gets skewered again. And I clap my hands and I howl, I howl like an animal. When it started to drizzle I put on my mustard crochet slouch hat even though I was wearing a cerise blouse and pink espadrilles. No one would be looking at a well-preserved woman, even Shelley hadn't mentioned my roots, she was long past that too. Only the woman in the house that used to be 38 until she went and called it Montserrat because it had a bay window noticed and said, aren't we an awful fright, the big Botox bitch that she is? And that thing she has growing down the side passage is no more Japanese maple. I took a picture on my phone and looked up Wikipedia and it's pure cannabis. Of course, she's old enough to have it on a script for rheumatism. Still, she was quick on her trotters the time I slept it out one Saturday and my Irish Times was missing when I went to sanitise it on the boot scraper. But what was Basil doing as the drizzle turned to rain and the rain lashed? 
No more wandering around the parish with a scythe he stole from a petting farm in Kerry where they charged an entrance fee to the actual dolmen, even though a right-of-way through the boring with the Mombrisha takes you there free gratis and for nothing. Of course, he doesn't mind the wet, so long as it's bright and the streets are empty and he can skateboard along the canal. Says he's waterproof. Even the Deliveroo man, Brazilian of course, all obrigada, said to him he should take shelter. But Basil told him he was an expat living in the outback in Australia with the Aborigines and he missed a good soaking in the first official language, the sound of the squelch in his desert boots and the odour of drenched wool at a two-bar fire in the bedsit with a rising damp. He might well be at it still somewhere in six or four. Bring out your dead, bring out your dead, bring out your dying for that matter. Anyone over 65 is not for resuscitation. But the one that got the guards involved was bring out your victims and we'll clear the country. Then they took the scythe off him, blunt as a butter knife and all rusted. Shelley rang me on the two gals app, roaring laughing when I got home. The neighbour opposite with the twins, but naturally, and another bump beginning, had organised an Irish barbecue for the 17 tots in Seamus Heaney Way and Seamus Heaney Weir, with balloons on every bollard on Seamus Heaney Green. Easy for them, whose crazy paved backyards with the raised beds and the brazier face the sweet south. If you face south, you can face anything. You can face the North Atlantic. My mantra would be Mediterranean, at least the post-Christian parts, not the Arab ones, all burkas and bottom pinchers. What's an Irish barbecue? I said because I was sudden and I was wondering if the squirrel had hemorrhaged halfway up to its broadleaf bedroom. An Irish barbecue, she explains, is when you serve the pit of bread and hummus outside and scurry in again with your pashminas over your blow dry for your bacon and egg clonakilty burgers. And after the sorbet and the rainstorm, you take a straw poll on whether to eat the Ottolenghi pavlova on the deck or in the sunroom. When I was her age, it was out the back or in the glass house. But she wouldn't serve food like that at a preschool party, I said. She might serve vegetable smoothies, but you can still buy chicken nuggets. You can still buy Neapolitan ice cream. Sure, what would I know about children, she said. My body can't stand them. And there was that statement silence of hers, a silence on speakers. It always ends in tears. I was thinking, I said, that the Regency card table could go. The Regency card table would cover another try. You love your Regency card table, she said. I only ever kept sanitary towels in it, I said, and a pack of pontoon. It had stopped raining, of course it would rain again once you put the washing out, but in between the sandstone flags would steam and the mica schist in the yard wall would glitter a bit. Even the wheelie bins would gleam and the snails come out as slow as the continental drift, their eyes on stalks at the neon dazzle. Do you miss the marquetry vitrine? she said. No, I said. The marquetry vitrine meant that he saw a consultant instead of a registrar. You could dart upstairs and put a dab of Factor 50 on the bridge of your nose, but by the time you pull the wicker chair to the sun trap where the Wendy house had been, the world would be smiling through its tears again like a Chekhov heroine. All the neighbours I liked, all the neighbours I hated, all the neighbours I needed would be out in their little allotments looking up at the blue beyond, not knowing, not having a clue. A toasting fork in their hand, the first drops spitting in the charcoal like the fizzy strike of matches. A brolly is a sunshade in a bad mood, Basil says. A sunshade is a brolly with dementia. He's full of online fortune cookies. How is he at the minute, Shelley said. I suppose she felt she had to. Happy as Larry, I said. He and the world are a perfect match. He's avid for Covid. It's pathetic. The mind boggles, she said. She was thinking of the Regency card table. No, I said, the mind googles. And it's a mystery. How did I manage all my life without Wikipedia? That was Karen Ardiff in A Pathetic Fallacy by Aidan Matthews, which Aidan wrote last year in response to our long story short season, a series of dramatic reflections on lives lived through COVID. The producer was Kevin Reynolds. Next, a game changer that almost gives the game away. Almost. Sound Effects in a Studio is a poem by Aidan Matthews which neatly partners poetry and production. 
It was first broadcast in 2005 and it's available in his 2018 collection, Strictly No Poetry. Sound effects for Trish. The actors drinking wine on microphone are drinking water only. Their cut glass is cracked styrofoam. My 18th century heroine faints in a tank top and warm leggings under a denim mini. Unlike the World Service announcers in shot silk and satin dresses, who once introduced operas, curtain calls across static Europe. She is more like a Greek station porter with his left luggage and lost luggage, who is called Kyrios Metaphor. So let one thing stand for another. Let us walk on sacred ground by twisting cotton wool for snowshoes. Let it rain dry rice in a jam jar. Let the creak of our stolen curragh be buttocks on a leatherette bar stool. Our kisses a lip-smacked wrist and the radio studio a radiant study or a bedroom even where two sweethearts are sound asleep in real linen. They could be you and me if the red light were off. You're breathing through a blocked nose now, a breeze on the face of the deep. My silence, the only word for it. That was Sound Effects in a Studio by Aidan Matthews, which was originally broadcast in 2005. The producer was Siobhan Mannion. And listeners might like to know that this poem is among a gathering of 58 available in Aidan's 2018 collection, Strictly No Poetry, which is published by the Lilliput Press. We continue this evening with another milestone. On the eve of his 88th birthday, One Eye, One Finger sees Ireland's favourite Englishman, John Borman, narrating his time in lockdown surrounded by the splendours of nature in County Wicklow. Cocooned in Animo and writing with One Eye and One Finger, John chronicles his daily walks in a world fallen silent. Featuring music composed and performed by Aoife Nicormack, John Borman's Nature Diary was abridged for radio by Aidan Matthews. It is now performed by the author. One eye, one finger. April Fool's Day, 2020. As I step out of the conservatory facing north, supported by my pusher, the first thing that catches my eye is the chestnut, which is the first to leaf and the first to drop in the fall. It is showing leaf already and soon will sport those tall blossoms like candles on a Christmas tree. Then I see the boulder with Celtic spirals carved on it by my friend Brother Anthony 
a Benedictine monk. He spent many weeks carving it, and just as the Renaissance artist would say, Pope Pius, the what's it, caused this to be made, so Brother Anthony modestly carved into the granite, John Borman caused this to be made. My only contribution was to feed him while he carved. To the right of the rock is a tall Scots pine with a scary swing hanging from a high branch. A mile behind it is the steep round hill that announces Animo as you come from Roundwood. A little further to the right rise the perfect fan-shaped upper branches of our most majestic great oak. I want to genuflect, but it's 70 yards away and I can't cross that rough ground on my walker. Hanging over the driveway are aspens, more oaks, hazel bushes, a vast, shapeless, overgrown larch, and finally, my beloved twin oak that hangs precariously over the river. I sit on the bench under the twin oak and watch the river go by. This is my minute, vast universe, the only walk on which my legs will carry me. Moving slowly, I notice things I used to flash past. Fourth of April. Those couple of warm days have woken the red squirrels and they are ravenously eating the twin oaks acorns from last year. The squirrels have been here for the 50 years of my stay. We had an invasion of grey squirrels. I set a trap with peanut butter. The greedy greys would not allow the reds anywhere near the peanut butter, and so they perished. One acorn from the twin oak evaded the squirrels, the mice, the badger, and self-planted. As it grew, the deer ate off its crown. It sent out a branch as a lopsided leader and celebrated today with a growth of healthy leaves. It begins to flourish, nature's way. If you make a hundred thousand acorns, one might stick. A few million people will come up with a Einstein or a beetle. I sent Jerry to the orchard to prune the fruit trees this morning. He shares our isolation and works four days a week and does a lot of the stuff that I used to do myself. I prolong my life through others. The coronavirus has gifted us silent skies, clear water in Venice and reduced emissions. It stopped the clocks, locked us up, banned cars from the roads, shot down all the planes, 
played havoc with the stock exchange, taught us to wash our hands four times every day. Its iron grip on life and death takes our breath away. The low sun lights up the silver birches. They flash at me as I make my slow progress down the drive. Overnight, the wild garlic has appeared at the foot of the lime trees, announcing itself with that lovely heady scent. I sit quietly on the bench, thinking. When my daughter Telsha died, we planted in her name a Himalayan larch. The larch is tall and slender and has parchment-like bark I can peel it off and write upon it. I had plans to write greetings to her friends, but never got around to it. I stand at my swimming hole as the river hurtles past. Come with me, the river calls. Come with me to the sea. Come with me. Tempting, yes but courage fails. Tenth of April. Lee saw the kingfisher today during his morning swim. It is some years since I saw him uh, flash past. My diminishing eyesight, not up to it. The other fisher of this stretch of river, I can see very well. The heron stands stock still on a rock in the centre of the river, pretending to be a stick. When he takes flight, he opens his five feet wingspan and soars up into the sky. It is Good Friday. A clever Hindu scholar asks me to explain. First you crucify your god, then you eat him every Sunday. Why? I go out and brave the bitter cold northeast wind. 
thousands of little yellow bud covers ejected by the emerging birch leaves litter the tarmac below. The birch arch is gradually restoring itself. There are a few dragonflies down at the swimming hole and some common butterflies. For 50 years, no pesticide has touched this land. Yet our insect life is sparse. The midges used to drive us crazy. We put heather in our ears to mask the smell of the earwax that they crave. That harsh winter three years ago has set them back happily. The death toll soars in Britain. Down by the Twin Oak, sitting on a bench, watching the river go by, I fell into a timeless reverie. Two birds singing in a deeper register and another with a rasping cry. No swallows yet. Lee in his black Alsatian came looking for me, concerned. Did you fall asleep, Dad? He made us nettle soup with wild garlic, delicious. 17th of April, another sunny morning, an east wind and rain promised later, much needed. I sit on the bench by the twin oak. The birds are busy mating and nesting, obeying the same instincts that drive us to have and raise children. Our subconscious it's calling all the shots. It does all my best writing and has all my best film ideas. I shamefully accept credit. The rain comes through in the afternoon. I go out and let it fall on my face. Eighteenth of April. I go down the hill from the house. The trees look mournful. I turn back, a loss of power. I regret the half bottle of white wine I had with a chicken last night. I tore back up the hill. I get back, drenched in clammy sweat, sleep in my chair, wake up cold. Lee tells me that yesterday the river was warm for the first time this season. I hear that ladybirds and daisies are seen all over the west of Ireland. But not here. Our altitude always costs us a couple of degrees and a couple of weeks. I'm clearing the view of my perfectly shaped great oak by cutting back the hazel bushes that obscure it. There is a birch that intrudes Lee pleads for its life. As I await the reluctant oaks to leaf, I ponder and wonder how the oak came to dominate Northern Europe after the last ice age. 
The birch led the charge north, followed by the oaks. It is hard to understand. They are fragile when young and so succulent to animals. Lee reminds me that wolves were hunting the deer, which didn't give them much time to nimble saplings. The Hamilton Wood, which leads down to Loch Dan, is primeval. I've walked it and fall under its spell over and over. I filmed Lancelot riding through a carpet of bluebells and Merlin instructing the young Arthur as he gets tangled up in the wood. Thirtieth of April, a bird is singing in each of the gorse bushes. Why don't you tear down those ugly things? I'm asked. Oh, they've always been there and I would miss them. They're coming into their modest leaf. A small, dull affair. What are their fierce prickles defending? Well, if, uh, for whatever reason, a bird needs to sing close to the ground, a thorn bush's prickles defend it from marauding cats. Now I have a better excuse for not cutting them down. A few more daisies have popped up, a bouquet to congratulate the oaks. Like me, they feared they never would. In these bad times, anything is possible but we can at least celebrate renewal. On this, the last day of the month, I step out. A little to the right is our half-dead sycamore. This sycamore was dying when I first got here. It was 49 summers ago. It was stunted. Its bark cracked and sear. I fed it nitrogen to make it grow, but it shriveled and wilted and branches fell. But each spring, it flaunts an umbrella of leaves that gains it another year's reprieve. Too old for sex, it no longer makes those helicopter seeds that litter the place. Finally, I reach my beloved twin oak. I touch its bark to announce my presence and sit down on the bench. The tree's lower branches dip into the river, causing tiny eddies and making their leaves flutter. I sense the tree casting its spell. I fall willingly under it. The great oak is pumping in excess of a hundred gallons of water per day up the great height of the tree. No one knows how. I was taught it was by capillary action. Even as a schoolboy, that looked very shaky. When I railed against it, I was told by the priest that God moves in mysterious ways. If God created the world, he found that Everything worked except getting water to go up a tree. 
So he decided to make water vapor lighter than air so it would float up to form clouds and expand when it turned to ice instead of contracting like everything else. But when it came to getting it 300 feet up a tree, well, solve that and find God. 9th of May, another warm sunny day. Lee urges me to go with him to our swimming hole. It's a trek at the far end of our stretch of river. Only 300 yards, but hard enough over grass with my pusher. Last summer, I ventured into the river alone after an absence of several years. My feet and lower legs are leaden. I found I could not raise them. I lack flotation. In order to swim, you need to be horizontal or at least halfway so. I was vertical. I tried to paddle with my arms to shallow our water, but made little progress. I was being pulled under. I paddled hard with my arms, but could not regain the surface. Not a bad way to go in my favorite place in the world. I could no longer hold my breath. I sucked in water exactly as my feet touched the bottom. Old age is a series of retreats, and it seemed that swimming was another. Twenty-second of May. Charles Darwin delayed publishing The Origin of the Species for many years because of the effect it would have on his devout wife. It might have gone something like this. Darling, I have some bad news. God didn't create the world. It came about through natural selection. Don't be silly, Charles. I'm off to take communion. Do you really believe that that wafer is actually the flesh of Christ? Of course I do. Why are you crying, Charles? Lee cut the nail on my typing finger this morning. When the finger pressed the key, the nail hit the key above it. He has promised to cut the other fingers when he has more time. One more thing I can no longer do for myself. Twenty-fifth of May. Two years ago, a cuckoo perched in a tree just outside my kitchen door. Its cry at close quarters is harsh and ear-splitting. It revealed the cuckoo for what it is, a lazy thief. A natural history cameraman friend of mine nursed the ambition to photograph a cuckoo laying its egg in another bird's nest. In the fifth year of his attempts, he finally photographed the cuckoo laying her egg. I saw the final result. She dived in, laid her egg and left. I held the 35mm film in my hands. It was over in 13 frames 
There are 25 frames per second, so it took just over half a second. 27th of May. I hear a plane passing overhead, the first for a very long time. In another world. Will the post-virus world be more modest? Will we look back at the supermarket as the high point of the previous era? Container ships and planes, fleets of trucks and huge amounts of fossil fuels were involved in having those items confidently at our disposal week after week. We were known as consumers. Ninth of June, heavy cloud cover. This morning as I walked out, looking at my trees that I keep as pets, I was reminded of the six months I spent in the Amazon, the greatest forest in the world, preparing and making the film The Emerald Forest. It was an experience that profoundly changed me. I came to realize that this is a tree planet and we cannot survive without them. When there are more people than trees in the world, we are in deep trouble. Broken clouds and wind. One of the greatest pleasures nature has to offer is the sight of swallows wheeling and dancing in the wind as they were this afternoon. Mrs. Darwin would clap her hands in delight, while Charles would point out that they have evolved into insect hunters. They're acting out of hunger, not pleasure. Oh, Charles, you are such a spoiled sport. It reminded me of a day during the Battle of Britain, when high up in a clear blue sky, we watched a dogfight between a Spitfire and a Messerschmitt. They wheeled and twisted, but there was no sound. They were too high up. Finally, the German plane fell in smoke and flames. We clapped and cheered. The Spitfire dipped and did a victory roll. Wasn't it wonderful, said my mother. They were like a pair of swallows. My final entry, Midsummer. We are told that many, perhaps all, of our decisions are made by our subconscious. We observe the effects of imprinted behavior in animals, such as migration or a bird knowing which berries are poisonous. How do you explain that one, Charles? Thousands of birds died eating that berry. The birds that survived were the ones that did not eat the berry. Eventually, it became imprinted. Who did the imprinting, Charles? Time, darling. Trial and error over thousands of years. Wrong, Charles. It was God.
The beauty and mystery of nature consoles us. But only laughter and a sense of the absurd can sustain us. Take the human animal, this complex body we live in but do not understand. It obliges us to spend a third of our lives unconscious. We don't know why. We cannot grasp the concept of extinction or of eternity. We can enjoy a sense of peaceful well-being while racing around the sun at 30 kilometers per second. We are gifted illusions. We must modestly allow ourselves to be led. I am not the captain of my soul. I am a poor creature trying to connect. Lee took me in the wheelchair to the huge, perfect great oak that I have been admiring from afar for 50 years. The tree stands on a slope too steep for the wheelchair. Lee carried me in his arms up the slope and I was able to lean against the great oak's massive girth and give thanks. I had to wipe a tear from my eye to view it properly. I was in awe. We came back to the house and I sat down to write this with one eye and one finger. That was John Borman there narrating his nature diary. It was abridged for radio by Aidan Matthews. Special thanks to Jerry Trainer and Lee Borman. John Borman's nature diary, One Eye, One Finger, is published by the Lilliput Press. The music you heard was composed and performed by Aoife Nicormack from Aoife's album Kurs Nevoinlog, The Hollow of the Swallows. The producer was Kevin Reynolds. And finally, Kadish for Cohen. Kadish for Cohen was broadcast on Liveline in November 2016 on the occasion of Leonard Cohen's death. It was one of a series of reflections written by Aidan Matthews broadcast on Liveline on topics as varied and diverse as the Charlie Hebdo killings in Paris to the lack of a resurrection narrative in Mark's Gospel. Joe Duffy introduces Kadish for Cohen. Aidan Matthews is a drama producer here in this building here in RT Radio, also a fine, fine uh, writer and a fan of Leonard Cohn. He said to me earlier when they were going to see Leonard Cohn in Lizardell a few years ago, on the bus he looked around and he said, this could be the Dublin Diocesan Pilgrimage to Lourdes. This is uh, Aidan Matthews and Kadish, a hymn, a hymn, uh, Kadish for Cohn. U2's Bono spoke famously some years ago of the 150 Psalms in the Hebrew Bible as being the blues of God. But if anyone in our own cultural era, which is both post-religious and at the same time patently biblical, has composed a modern Psalter that is adequate to the beautiful ordeal of the world, it's neither Bono himself nor his older Jewish contemporary, Bob Dylan, 
But the psalmist, Leonard Cohen, who has now finally fulfilled the human dignity of his long life by dying altogether. Whether he's entered into eternity is another matter. Cohen is a priestly name in the language Jesus the Galilean spoke, and his ministry as a musician, his pastoral service of the sacred order, which is to say his fidelity to the ordinary realm of the here and now, was always superbly shy. During his remarkable sabbatical on this, our blue planet, which may or may not be the sanctuary lamp of the whole universe, his own blues spanned an entire oceanic spectrum, from cobalt and cornflower, turquoise and violet, to iris and indigo. Orthodox rabbis recommend lovemaking on the Sabbath day as a pact with providence, a partnership in the creativity of a god who was always passionately conceiving the other. And Cohen, the Canadian Jew with the Catholic nanny, and therefore the bilingual child of two religious traditions locked in a lover's quarrel, was perfectly positioned to become, in James Joyce's expression of that same struggle and that same bear hug, a Jew-Greek and a Greek-Jew. Moreover, his wise Judaic roots enabled him to heal the scandalous division between grace and the body, between holiness and flesh, which had been caused by centuries of Christian mischief. His miraculous lyrics mirror that meeting. Peace is not quiet, and quiet is not peace, and rest in peace is not, thank God, the human condition. We should not wish it upon someone who was gifted with such rich restlessness. Many of us lost our virginity listening to Leonard Cohen, and as many of us again regained our eventual innocence by returning, time after time, year in, year out, sorrowful decade upon glorious decade, to his songs of ascent and of descent, of death and restoration. Now the stylus lifts like an oar for the last time from the vinyl river. Now it is silence that must speak for us. If it be your will That I speak no more And my voice be still As it was before I will speak no more I shall abide until I am spoken for If it be your will If it be your will Let a voice be true From this broken hill I will sing to you From this broken hill All your praises they shall ring 
Uh, introduced, so to speak, in that wonderful essay by uh, Aidan Matthews. It's a fantastic uh, piece. It really is by Aidan Matthews. Thank you, Aidan. And if I may echo Joe's words of thanks there and thank Aidan on behalf of all of us who've worked with him, his colleagues past and present, all the actors, the writers, the musicians, the priests and nuns, and the religious of all faiths and none. Now, for the last 20 years, I sat beside the smartest guy in the radio centre. I've cogged his exercise and I've coveted his lunch. Every day he came in with a full lunchbox of perfectly cut triangular ham sandwiches without the crusts that Trish had lovingly prepared for him. Anyway, the journey was such an education. It was filled with fun and friendship. It was informed by intelligence and insight and it was seasoned with divinity and divilment. Gurv Mahakudachara. And in the words of Dave Allen, good night and may your God go with you. Iwa. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.